0: life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark LeBusk talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Hey, g'day there, fellow humans. Mark LeBusk here for another episode of the Simply Practically Human podcast, the 4S version. I've had a couple of weeks off. For those who have been following me maybe on Insta, maybe a bit of LinkedIn, um, some other bits and pieces I've been um, posting up. Some photos of a two-week trip to the Northern Territory in Outback, Australia. Amazing. Never been there before. Never been up to Darwin, the capital city of the NT, or visited some of the places that Alison and I went to, and I purposefully had two weeks off of doing this podcast because I'd made a commitment to myself and also to Alison that those two weeks would be work free. And I'm pretty proud to say I did follow and eat my own dog food. The message that I put in my out of office very much said that I was taking a life design break and that I'd be in situations at times where I had no connection whatsoever. I'll talk about that uh, later on, and that uh, I'd sort of get back to you when I arrive back into the work world, which I'm back into now. It is uh, Wednesday, the 29th of June at 1:02 p.m. This one will come out on Friday, the 1st of July this year. So um, good to be back doing one of these. And today's episode is really focused around what I'm going to call some of the things I learned when I was away for the two weeks. Some of the things that have been reinforced. Some things I knew, and I'm going to start with maybe a little bit of background of what the trip was about. So, the first week of the trip was a an organised cycling activity with uh, Bicycle Network or Bicycle Victoria, as we know them by. We've done the Bicycle Victoria rides around Victoria. Alison's done ten of them. I've done about five, where you know three or four thousand people get together and. And we do the Great Vic bike ride, so we could be going from the Great Ocean Road up through the middle of Victoria, up into the high country, wherever it may be, down the southwest at times we've done as well, even one time started in another state. So we'd we'd enjoyed these, and uh, it just came up that they were going to do their first top end bike ride, so a ride through some pretty amazing parts of the Northern Territory, Combined with some tours and some, I'm going to call it some cultural immersions. Again, I'll speak about the impact they had on me as we go through this podcast. So the first seven or eight days was with 109 other human beings who we'd never met before, cycling our way around some pretty amazing scenery, swimming in some water holes. Gorge was one place which was uh, formerly called the Catherine Gorge. We went out to Litchfield. We cycled through Kakadu. At the Ubeer, which was the most amazing sunset I've ever seen. So it was very, very well structured by the gang at the Bicycle Network and and hats off, kudos to them, to Craig and his team there for the, the amazing event that they put on. So over those seven or eight days, one of the lessons that was reinforced to me, and for those who know me well will not be surprised by this one, was that starting a conversation is a very human thing to do. So when we arrived into Darwin off the aircraft, we were standing around with a dozen other people who were part of the ride group, none of them of which we knew. You have a choice then, fellow humans. You start a conversation or you sort of stay doing your own thing. So, um, you know, we start talking and we meet uh, Mark and Joss, who are from Melbourne. Uh, We meet Stephen and Fiona. Um, We meet a few other people. Having conversations there while we were waiting for others to arrive and also some conversations on the bus, you start to find some connection, you start to find some commonality, could have been about kids, particularly with Mark and Joss, it was about the empty nesting that they were doing and um, how they started to downsize with some changes with family and young, uh, young family moving out. We met a young couple as well uh, that night who had been talking to Mark and Joss By the name of Megan and Jake, and they were early 30s. They'd actually traveled up by their vehicle. They'd done a bit of a a tour up to Darwin and then they were going to do the bike ride, then head back down again. A few days later, we met up with Greg and Debbie, and that was a really good conversation one night. When we're out in Catherine, you start to find some more of that commonality. So and as we go around, on the first night, we, we were at the Darwin Sailing Club and we uh, sort of sit around communal tables having something to eat from the lovely buffet they put on there. And um, we were sitting with four people. There was Jimmy, Leanne, Carolyn, and I forget the, the name of the other person, but some of you won't be surprised about that. And we were just having some convos. They were from across the Westgate Bridge, so not too far from where we lived. Talked a bit about what we did, talked a bit about family, talked a bit about why we were there. And, uh, you know, Jimmy was cracking some jokes as well, some real dad jokes that these guys had obviously all heard before. They were funny. I didn't laugh because I felt I had to. I laughed because he was a pretty funny guy. And um, he sort of shared a bit about his background and that he was up there the year before when the bike ride got called off because of COVID, but spent some time up around the area and was really loving what he was doing at, at his age of 71, was just sort of traveling around and going to music festivals and doing different things. So we found a lot of commonality and we continue to bump into those people throughout the ride. And it's interesting that, you know, as you start to familiarise yourself with some people, so do you you start to look for them at breakfast and at dinner and you sort of sit around and you just deepen your connection. One night at the Jabberoo Golf Club, we all went out there for a feed and we continued to build that connection, which I know for sure will run into us all catching up, particularly the ones in Melbourne will catch up after the event. So that was one of the things that was really reinforced to me, which is music to my ears, is that just start a conversation. Don't sort of sit there in a, let's say a, um, an awkward way, an introverted way, whatever you want to call it, and not speak to people. Just get there and start that conversation with them. One thing for me that was that I really learned, and this was an amazing experience, and, and it sort of makes me feel a bit sad and angry at the same time, was that we rode out of Catherine, I think it was on day three, and we rode out to what was formerly called Catherine Gorge, but now called Nitmaluk Gorge, which is the Indigenous name for for the gorge, and it's the most spectacular scenery, some of the most spectacular scenery I've ever seen. One of the bonuses of this bike ride was that, the cultural immersion that we were able to see was just incredible. So before we we rode our bikes out at about 6am that morning and we got out there and they had set up out there for us. There were four different areas that we went to and in each of the areas we had some of the local Indigenous human beings there teaching us and telling us some story and teaching us about some of their culture and and really – I'm going to say very openly, and I just love this so much, openly um, asking us to ask any sorts of questions we wanted to. And so I found out a whole lot of things about how the the tribes had come together at different times and, and different meeting places. We learned about the different types of didgeridoos. We learned about some of the rituals that go on out in these places and still go on today where it's a bit of a rites of passage type thing. And and even talking to some of the um, the young men and women that were there talking to us, just sharing some of their own experiences. And I really got a sense of community from it. I got a sense of compassion. I got this real sense of pride as well. And I also started to feel a bit of sadness and some anger as well because all of these things, and I'm 55, all of these things that I was learning about, and it was great that I was learning then, but I just wondered why the fuck we didn't get to learn some of this stuff back in school. And I did make a comment to Jake and to Megan when we were writing back from there that day that, and no disrespect to the French, but geez, Year 7 and 8 French, you know what? I'm not quite sure I'm doing too much with that these days. I wonder if Year 7 and 8 Indigenous cultural immersion would have been something that I would have got a hell of a lot more out of rather than what I'm going to call the whitewashing of the curriculum that we got at the time that basically gave us nothing. So, I think there's something in that. What was really nice to hear though on a tour we did one day, there was a couple of young boys there who have been starting to get some really good education in schools around the history of Australia and the, and the history of Australia before it was, they call it, discovered or maybe invaded back in the 1700s, late 1700s. But it's just lovely to hear that some of that stuff starting to come into play. So my learning from that my learning about what the lands mean, my learning from looking at some incredible like rock art that we saw that we were able to be fortunate enough to see, some of it that, we, that through tradition we're not allowed to take photos of, but we're allowed to go out and see and understand what it means, that I've come away from two weeks in the Northern Territory with a far better appreciation and understanding of the culture of, of those who were First Nations, those who have been here for over 60,000 years. As they say, one of the oldest if not the oldest living culture on this earth and I can't help as I said but feel a bit of sadness and a bit of anger but also now I'm going to say the appreciation that I feel for being able to be immersed in in something that I didn't really know that we were going to get when we're out there so learn 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 every day is something that was reinforced for me when I was out there part of that too was getting back to nature so our ability to understand nature and understand the way different cultures had themselves working with the forces of nature. So one of the things that's incredible as you're flying into Darwin, you see a lot of smoke and you see a lot of fires happening. And what we got to learn again as we were out riding our bikes, particularly through Kakadu and through uh, Litchfield, was that there were these planned burns that were going on all the time. At this time, it's in the dry season. And these planned burns are very much based around again what's happened for tens of thousands of years with the first nations people and you know hearing the stories of why they do it and how they do it and it's done in such a way that it is not there to to basically create a wildfire and wipe out all the animals they they're done in a, in very much a way that they burn through slowly so that animals have a chance to escape the area some animals obviously come out of the area and as we found out that the kites the big birds that are in the sky will be hanging around and looking at that but Again, I couldn't but help to to really marvel at the way that the connection to the land of our Indigenous folk, of the way that they care for the land and they care for the animals on the land because they see the land as part of them and they see the animals as part of them and it's the way that they continue to, I guess, cycle through that ecosystem and, you know, I can't but help think that there's a whole lot that we can learn again given where I live and, and some of the horrific bushfires that we've seen around these areas, that there could be some things there from learning from other cultures rather than turning a blind eye that would be good. So these sorts of things were, were really important. Um, learning of the bombing of Darwin, something that happened in World War II that you know you sort of heard a little bit about, but again, we never really got educated. I think it was a bit of a, a bit of a well-kept secret at the time when it was happening, just to try not to spook too many of the Southerners. But, you know, 60 air raids on Darwin, more learning for me at fifty five again I'm saying learn, learn, learn there's a great lesson in this, not just for me but for you listeners as well, is that we never stop learning so sixty year age went and had a look at a couple of films about it, got to actually experience it through some virtual reality, which was both absolutely scary and nauseating at the same time i don't I don't do well with virtual reality goggles, I must say, but just to get that sense again of what it was like for the people of Darwin at the time when the Japanese bombers came in on February 19th, 1942, and created a fair bit of havoc up there. And that was just once of 60 times that they came in. So learning more about our country, and I did say to Alison at the time, even though we're in the same country, it could be in a different world. Such was, I guess, the beauty and, and the difference in, you know, 31, 32 degrees every day versus I'm back here in Melbourne now, I think it's 11 or 12 today just seems like like a whole different world away. So there's starting a conversation, there's the ability to get back to nature, understanding different cultures, the learning every day. I think another one that was really good for me was that we hadn't ridden our bikes for about two and a half years actually out on the road and, and I'd been doing a lot of work in my gym. But at the same time, it was a great chance for me to test my limits and this, this could be not just from a fitness perspective, this could be from a leadership perspective, could be from any perspective, but the great lesson in pushing yourself into discomfort. So there was one particular day where I tended to start with Alison a bit and then we'd, I'd sort of head off a bit because I found it hard, harder to ride at a slow pace than ride at my usual pace. Um, I felt like a bit of a prick as well because there are other couples there that were riding together. Some people will say at times I'm a selfish bastard and, and I'll agree with them that I am. You've also need a bit of self-time as well and, and that. But there was one day in particular that I'd met that young couple, Jake and Megan, on, on the boat ride through Nipmalook Gorge. And Megan said, why don't you ride back with us? And I said, yep, that's cool. So 33 k's back into a pretty strong headwind that day in the afternoon. So it was about 35, 36 degrees. And these guys uh, have ridden a bit. So as I started to head off for the first, say, five or 10 minutes, I'm like, geez, this is a cracking pace. And um, i got to see what happens here. So I I started to feel that level of discomfort, but at the same time, I was feeling that level of not wanting to let someone down who invited me to ride with them. Jake was pretty fancy. He had all the gear, had the big calf muscles as well. I think if he listens to this, he'll love that. Megan was a machine. She rode a bike like mine, a hybrid, but she would almost come past us at it's sort of low to mid 30 k's, just sort of whistling and taking the lead as well. I learned a bit about how how you can ride really closely to people without absolutely shitting yourself. That was a good thing too. But when I looked at my data, when I got back to the hotel, I'd worked out I'd ridden back to Catherine 24 minutes quicker than I'd ridden out there, even though I thought I did a reasonable pace out there. And what it was for me was to give me a a sense that I had pushed myself into discomfort. There was a a moment about six k's out where I said to Jake, I reckon I'm cooked. And the good old Jake said, no, you're not, mate. You just keep going. And, And I stayed with him. But it was nice not to just go along at a, what I call a comfortably comfortable pace. I reckon I was at the outside of comfortably uncomfortable and at times pushing into uncomfortably uncomfortable, given the temperature, given the fact that the water in the bottle was by this stage very bloody warm. And I was feeling you know, a little bit nauseous and a little bit overheated at times. But the lesson there, again, was if you don't put yourself into that discomfort, you can never work out what you're really capable of doing. So I say thanks to Megan and thanks to Jake for the invitation and show me uh, that I could do more than I thought I was capable of. After the bike ride, we, uh, Alison and I headed off to an amazing place called Bamaroo Plains, which was another moment of discomfort for me because I had to fly in a four-seater aircraft with a pilot who looked like he was in about year five. He came and picked us up from the hotel. And the first thing I said to him was, mate, I don't care about how many hours you've flown. I care about how old you are because he looked like he was about 10. But he was a lovely bloke and he eased my nervousness as well did a little pill that I'd taken two hours before to say just to to block out some of maybe the nervousness that might come when I saw the aircraft. The aircraft was small, and you will see a picture of the aircraft in my little teaser that I do, but I think the pill had helped me a little bit, but by the time I got there and he talked me through it a bit, I got in the plane. I Actually, there was a lot more room than I thought there was going to be. It's funny how you create all these pictures in your mind, which I'd been doing for about three months, about how small this was going to be and about the reaction that I'd have when I first got there. I saw the plane and I did have a bit of an oh shit moment, but by the time I got out to it, I got in okay. Alison had some sort of view in her mind that I was supposed to take two pills, but I only took one. She was, had a view in her mind that she'd be wheeling me out in a wheelbarrow and they'd be sort of flopping me into the plane. But the 50-minute ride out to Bamaru Plains, which is a, a working cattle station with this beautiful luxury resort, where two things really came to mind for me there the first thing that came to mind for me was that I didn't have technology for four days and there was no technology. There was no phone. There was no internet. There was no TVs, none of that sort of stuff. So what was really interesting there was that we were cut off from the world for four days. What I wasn't particularly proud of, I got to say, with that little moment of the four days without the technology, one thing I wasn't overly proud of was that I did have a sneaky look at the Wi-Fi connections and saw the Bamaru Plains had one, and I had three goes at trying to work out their, uh, their password, which was a really stupid thing to do. It really showed how addicted I am to my phone. And what I will say, though, is after four days, I'd never felt more relaxed. It was a, an amazing place. We got to go out on the floodplains, the floodplains flood which have the, most, the highest percentage of crocodiles in Australia in that particular area. Uh, we saw a few, um, 4.2 metre one was the biggest one we saw out there, but just how relaxed it became. So the day was pretty much set for you, 6 o'clock you're up, 6.30, you'd have some brekkie. 7 o'clock you'd go out on an airboat, you'd go on a safari or you might go out on the river spotting crocs. When you got back in, basically it was your time till 12.30, you'd get back about 10 o'clock, you could sit around talking, again, starting conversations with some great people that we met there as well. There was uh, Greg and Allison that we met there, Matthew and Jenny and their kids, and a few others that we met along the way, we would sit around and sit around the pool, have a chat, read a book, maybe have a sleep, have lunch at 12.30, do the same thing in the afternoon, have a sleep, read a book, maybe open up the open bar that was there and have a gin and tonic, but it was just really chilled time, and 4.30, we'd go out on another tour, 7.30, we'd have dinner, off to bed, and then repeat four days in a row. We got back to Darwin and a couple of people said to both Alison and I, they couldn't believe how relaxed we looked. And I really think that there's a great lesson in this for me and I think for everybody was that a little bit of downtime on the technology was something that I sort of looked at it like this. It was almost like all of the busyness and clutter was evaporating. And over those four days, a bit like the floodplains do, as they showed us in the week we were there, is that they slowly evaporate and and to the point where they dry up. And all that busyness and clutter had dried up. And then we got back to Darwin and we caught another little flight on the way back, a little four-seater again, two pilots this time, which was terrific. They told us it was going to be a bit like a washing machine, but it was a bit better than that, which was fortunate Back into Darwin, we'd uh, told we were very relaxed by the people at the reception at the hotel we stayed at. And then the next morning we go down for breakfast and there's a TV down there and I keep looking at it and I'm seeing stories about Lisa Wilkinson and the Logies. I'm seeing stories about Jordan Degoe in Bali, a couple of little controversial things that happened. I'm seeing stories about the cost of living and inflation. It almost felt in that moment like that someone came with that a new bucket of water and absolutely saturated my brain again with the busyness and the clutter of everything that was going on in the world. It was almost instant that it started to impact. And Alison was like, well, we don't really need to be picking our phones up all the time or you don't need to be. So another big lesson for me there was that a little bit of downtime on that phone, I think is a fantastic thing, but it's also really challenging because I know I have And I know many of you have a certain addiction to that device, but it was nice to be able to be in a situation that whilst, again, it felt uncomfortable and I was out of control, that nothing happened uh, when I couldn't get to the phone. Everything was still okay. We always do wonder if the family's okay, but the family was okay as well. So there's another lesson there is that maybe putting that technology down for a while is going to be a good thing for me to, to start to think about. The other thing I learned up at Bamaroo Plains was that the manager up there, a really, really nice guy, had had a bit of a clean out of staff and and he he'd hired what he said was for personality, not so much for technical skills because he could train them. and and I think the oldest guide that we worked with was about twenty five. Now when I walked into this place and I always get a sense of what it's like, it seemed to be like a place where people really enjoyed working. So, uh, again, my lesson out of that, and I see this quite a lot because I get to work with lots of organisations, is getting that sense of what's really going on underneath the smiles, and and what's the banter like, what's the fun like in there? Do they, how do they greet you? What are they doing when they when they don't know that you're looking? And all the things I saw were absolute credit to the human beings that worked at Bamaru Plains, and also to the the management there to to take that process of hiring good human beings and training them. In, I'm going to say what are some pretty challenging things, driving airboats, taking people out on safaris. The young guys and girls uh, who haven't driven manual cars before had to learn to drive these manual sort of safari vehicles as well. And I just say it was a credit to the way that they went about that. It's an amazing place. If you ever get a chance to to look it up, Bamaru Plains, B-A-M-U-R-R-U, Plains in the Northern Territory, great place to look at. So let me finish with, I guess, my last lesson to finish up this one today. Gone a bit longer than I usually do, but I think this was a very, very big lesson. I mentioned the first night we were there on um, the Saturday night at the Darwin Sailing Club, and so we'd sat at the communal table with Jimmy and the rest of the girls there, and it sort of kept bumping into them along the way, and there was one day we were riding from Kiwinda Lodge, which is in Kakadu, to Jabiru. It was 82 kilometres in the afternoon, bloody hot day, I only got through to about 50 k's that day. I stopped at the Rock Art because I actually felt like my head was going to explode. I was riding along just at the start and I came up across someone. I looked, that's a familiar face and it was Jimmy. And so for about 15, 20 minutes, Jimmy and I were riding along and we were just sharing some conversation again, some stories, finding some commonality. Now, Jimmy had been overseas at COVID and managed to get back to Australia, Canadian origin, 71 years old. Done a lot of things in his work career, but was sort of now, I guess, enjoying the, the spoils of traveling around a bit and doing the bike rides. He loved music festivals. So we had a good chat. We talked a bit about, you know, that we were both, whilst I was 55, he was 71. We had a lot of living to do and also talked a bit about the plans and the things that we were wanting to do. Talked a bit about our ailments, my bad knee, his bad back, et cetera, et cetera. After about 15 to 20 minutes, I kept going. And then we had a rest day the next day. And then the final day we rode, Alison and I, was from Jabiru to Ybir, And it's interesting, I got to a certain point, I rode a lot that day on my own, and I got to a certain point, and Kalkale's Crossing, which is quite a remarkable place where you cross from Kakadu into Arnhem Land. So it's across a river and it's a tidal river. So at times, particular time of the day, the crocodiles all turn up because the barramundi go across there and they turn up to get themselves a nice little feed. So I went down to watch that and there was a fella down there and he he was from the hotel where we stayed, a young bloke who was working there and he said, oh, I was on the way out and um, I saw someone on the ground with a defibrillator out and I'm like, geez, what, one of the bike riders? And they said, yeah. So I'm sort of thinking to myself, shit, I don't know who that might be. And then not long after, another couple turned up and they basically passed on the news that they'd actually seen a white sheet over the top of one of the riders. So... Uh, all of a sudden, my mind was going at a million miles an hour wondering who it might be, what might be going on, because they sort of described it as one of your fellas on the ride looks like he's in a bit of trouble. So we get into the uh, into the final spot at beer and um, and the, again, the, the amazing staff at Bicycle Vic or Bicycle Network pulled us aside, each of us, and they they shared with us what had happened. And what I found out, which really shocked me, was that it was Jimmy. And the Jimmy had um, had a massive heart attack, and had, despite the efforts of some of the other people that we'd met along the way, had sadly passed away. So it was a very, very somber finish to the situation, and a very somber night. Even though there were, you know, there was a, a bit of a toast to Jimmy, and the and the guys from Bicycle Network spoke really well about some things they'd found out about him from his three friends who we'd met on the first night, and. I guess for me, it sort of brought a couple of things up. First of all, that life is fucking short and you don't know what's going to happen. Here's a fellow two days ago I was riding along with. Didn't know him that well, but had learned some things about him. We'd shared some stories and not long after that, he's no longer with us and uh, that, that life is precious. And the second thing is that we shouldn't sweat the small stuff. So as you're riding along in the ride and you'll see things happen, there were people that were complaining that they'd had a puncture along the way or maybe a couple of punctures, which is very, very, it's a pain in the ass, but it's not life and death. I'd found that when they put my bike back together out of the boxes up there, that maybe my seat was a little bit lower than usual. So I felt a bit uncomfortable in the first day or two. So I fixed that, but I was sort of in my own mind bitching and moaning a bit about that sort of thing, you know, early starts, late finishes, busy days, all of those sorts of things were coming up, and I think myself, including others, making them bigger than what they were. And then you get what happens with Jimmy, and it puts everything into perspective. So I want to finish today to say valet to Jimmy. And I didn't know him that well, but he seemed like a bloody good fella, funny guy, had some good stories, told some good jokes, had lived a pretty good life. And perhaps, as some people said, he went the way that he might have wanted to because he loved his bike riding. And just reminding everybody that that life is short and You know, Don't feel guilty as we didn't when we went out on two weeks holiday. At other times, I have felt guilty. Go out there and enjoy yourself because you don't know what's coming up around the corner. So that's pretty much it. That's the two weeks. Some good lessons in there. Hey, um, I hope you pick something up from that. I I hope that some of you got some joy out of seeing some of the amazing photos, particularly the sunsets that uh, we were posting. And if you love this one, rate it five stars and give us a little comment on why you loved it. Was there a particular lesson or message in there that is resonating with you right now? And if you liked it, share it with your friends. And uh, until next time, as I always say, keep it simple, keep it practical and keep it human. Bye for now.